This is Top Floor, Episode 10. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash 10. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. It is my delight to welcome Jay Schwartz for today's Ride Up to the Top Floor. Jay's career started as a graphic designer and brand strategist after an exploration of and degree in fine arts. Jay started his agency, Idea Work Studios, in 1999. Many awards and much recognition later, his firm was acquired by Once Upon a Time, a London-based agency, and he became the executive creative director and CEO of its hospitality division. Jay has worked with glamorous boutique hotels like Ian Traeger's Public, 60 Hotels, and The Nomad, as well as celebrity chefs such as Jean-Georges and Danielle Belloud. He's here today to talk about how hospitality companies can use visual branding to create memorable guest experiences. I'm so happy that you're here, Jay, but we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning marketing questions. And today's question comes from Liza. Liza asks, how important is it to pick the right color palette for your hospitality brand. What do you think, Jay? How important is color? Oh, we're starting with a good one. Um, color is very, very important. There's an entire psychology of color, how color affects human behavior. I typically, in my work, when I start the process of presenting a brand to a client, I never use color. I always start in black and white for a number of reasons. Firstly, a good design needs to stand alone on black and white. Color is so important in people's decision-making factors. And it is so subjective that you can present the best design in the world. And if the person on the other end um, doesn't like the color red that day, then they're just going to you know, reject the design no matter how good it is. Layer in color when we're trying to imbue the brand's personality. I love what you said about a good design should stand on its own in black and white, regardless of color. I am interested though, my logo is a very powerful black and white design with bright yellow. What do you think that communicates? If you think about where you see yellow in our daily lives, you see it in yield signs and you see it in traffic signs and the yellow light is a warning. So it is very arresting and it's very um, powerful color and it demands attention, right? So it says that if I see a logo that's black and white and it's very, you know, big solids and then a, a big pop of yellow, it says this person is not afraid of uh, their style of communication. Right? You're somebody, somebody who's bold and maybe a little brash, but <laughs> Bold and a little brash is exactly right for me. I know that you initially explored graphic design as a result of sort of a sense of frustration with the business end of fine arts. I think I know what you mean, but can you say more about that? Do you think 
find artists now who, you know, exist in the world of the internet and have started their careers as digital natives have it easier? Or do you think it's harder because the landscape is more crowded? Um, I, I never think doing anything worth doing is easy. So I mean, for me, back in the day, why I was frustrated with the art scene is that I would spend my time and money and everything on paint and canvas and easels and uh, materials and brushes. And I invested so much physical expense in producing large-scale artworks on canvas. Uh, Or if I was doing a drawing, then there's the framing, the glass, and the blah. Um, to then have a gallery and sell out and the gallery takes 60%. Um, that's just frustrating. The term starving artist came from somewhere. So, <laughs> um, I think that's where it came from. I think today it's very different because, you know, uh, Instagram and everybody can see something and share something and say, Oh, this is cool. Or look at this artist. I mean, I've purchased art from, someone I'd never met, but I saw their stuff online and I went to their shop and I, you know, it resonated with me. And so I just bought it and it wasn't like super expensive. And I think at that level, you know, artists can keep their costs down because they don't have to support uh, the machinery of a gallery and all of that. But at the other side, I mean, nothing's easy, right? Everybody's hustling. When you started doing freelance graphic design and then ultimately founded your company, your clients, I know, came from hospitality because that was sort of the major opportunity where you're from in Santa Barbara. Did you continue to focus on hospitality because you had a track record in that industry? Or was there something special about working with hotels and restaurants that kept you coming back for more? When I started my business, I I was... Kind of, I had one foot in a part-time job and another foot in another part-time job, and then I started to do freelance. So I know that's three feet, but <laughs> but I was working, you know, 14, 15 hours. I was really trying to do my freelance thing and really trying to um, make that happen. And I was also, you know, naturally hesitant or frightened. Trying um, to pay the bills. <laughs> trying to pay the bills. And then, you know, you have your stable and then you're up and down. So Initially, I would take on anything that that came my way, but I really, because of Santa Barbara and because of what we had was hotels and restaurants, um, it allowed me to uh, invest myself in something that I care about. I decided that I really wanted to focus on hospitality when I started working in that industry. In addition to your work as Executive Creative Director and CEO of Once Upon a Time Hospitality, you are a well-known street painter. Can you explain what street painting is? Sure. Uh, Street painting is a centuries-old medium of creating large format murals on the ground in chalk pastel. Oh, cool. I've seen some of your work and I've also seen other artists' work and it's the most fascinating thing to look at, especially in the process of being created. Do you consider that an escape from your day job or is it sort of an extension of the creative work you do 9 to 5? I mean, it's both. It's mostly an escape. The things that are consistent or process and the steps it takes to come up to a, a end result, right? A painting, right? You have to plan and prepare the surface and grid. And those things are very process-oriented. 
once that's done, once the steps are done, then I just leave it alone. I, I'm creative. And um, the beauty for me about street painting is multifold. You know, one, it's challenging and that we're out in the elements. So if it rains, we're screwed. If it's too hot, we complain. If, um, <laughs> you know, if the surface isn't right or if it's too, you know, every surface is different because I travel around a lot and do this. Um, every environment has its own challenges. But when I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone. When I'm out in the street, street painting in front of you know, some festivals, there's 100,000 people walking around and you get to hear comments and you get to interact with people and they get to watch the process happen because, you know, I always say that if you if you go to a museum, you see a beautiful piece of work, it's very product oriented. You never get to see the artist in process. People don't understand how something gets made. And so this really is kind of educational and illuminating. And it's, you know, um, it's also really super accessible for kids because we're all at the same level on the ground. So there's no kind of barriers to a kid picking up a piece of chalk and trying it right next to you. And then the last part about it is that's completely div- divorced from my work work is that um, it's ephemeral. It goes away. You can't seal it. You can't um, pick it up and move it. You can't sell it. You can't buy it. It's purely mine. And if I choose to make something red, for example, and the viewer is like, oh, I don't like that color red. I always tell them that they are welcome to come back tomorrow when it's washed away. <laughs> and they can, then, you know, after I'm done with it, I get my photo. I'm done. I totally get it. When you begin a new branding project for a hotel or restaurant, do you have a consistent process for coming up with ideas? Like, do you, do they come to you as visual images or stories that you're telling yourself something else? And how much does how much of a part does research play in that? Research is critical. Oftentimes, I am asked to, you know, step in and come up with an entire brand story. I was upstate New York a couple of weeks ago. And I was I was standing on a pile of mud, and it was like, okay, now come up with the story. I look to research. I look to locality. Like a big thing for me is locality. If we're upstate New York, okay, now I need to research what upstate New York is and what the heritage of this specific space is, right? Not just upstate New York as a whole. Like, wh- what am I doing? How do I reflect what's been there before and either build on that, change it? You'll find gold in the heritage of a location. It'll all just sort of come in at once, right? You come up with a name. And then for me, the visuals and... But really the discovery process that I take on is critical. I'm always taking pictures. Always, always, always taking photos. I did this branding project in uh, the Pacific coast of Baja, California, in Todos Santos and in Mexico. And I saw this wave and the way the light hit the crest of the wave was the most stunning gray blue that I could imagine. And I said, that's our color. And I took a picture of it and I tried to match it to Pantones and I tried to do all this stuff. And so I reverse engineered that little, you know, whatever it was, a foot by three foot segment of the way the light hit the wave at this specific time of day. And it's, I know this sounds super cheesy and super esoteric, but it's those things that, you know, then we took that color, tried to replicate it, and we painted all of the vehicles for the hotel or the resort that color. Oh, that's it's cool. so distinctive. 
In a restaurant, there are so many points of interaction over and above the meal. So everything from a cocktail napkin, menu type base to the logo, the bathroom signage, there are even more in a hotel. What do you think are the visual touch points that make or break a guest experience? And what do you notice as a guest? Oh dear. I notice everything in the guest. <laughs> I figured um, you would say that. With hotels and restaurants, I go through in my mind and then with ownership or with the management, the guest journey. Right. So, like I mentioned about this pile of mud in upstate New York, I'm like, okay, let's walk this pile of mud as to what the arrival process is. What am I seeing as a guest when I'm driving in? How do I not get lost? Right. What does it look like at night? How is this going to be lit? What is the arrival process? Okay, so now I drop my car off. Is there a bellman? Is there a valet? What is that process like? Um, do I get a ticket? Does somebody jot my name down? Like, and, like how is that interaction? And, and what is the physicality of that? And then I go to check-in. And what do I get at check-in? And how can we enhance the guest experience, right? If, if it's a property in Mexico or somewhere tropical, Miami, do I get a cold towel infused with cucumbers and mint or something to ginger to, to refresh it? Am I offered a beverage? All of those things that sometimes I don't even produce, right? There's no like physical piece of paper or something. We want to try to reduce the amount of stuff in a room, but it's about all of these things are branding all of these things, what the uniform looks like, how it fits the front desk agent. Is there a, a cool uh, lapel pin or something that makes no sense to people at first, but then they get it after they've been there for a day or two? And then what does everything feel like? Right? Are we eco-friendly? So does all the paper look a certain way? If I'm working on an eco resort, and I try to do this across the board, but especially when we're doing like wellness projects or eco projects, um, the paper has to be 100% post consumer waste. End of story, full stop, right? I'm not going to talk the talk without walking the walk. And yes, it's going to cost more, but it's brand. All of these things matter. And we don't have to scream and shout that we're eco friendly and that this is printed on, you know, we're not printing a recycled icon on or letterhead or anything, but it has to feel and it has to look authentically 100% post-consumer. And this crosses everything. I mean, I, I go through exhaustive guest journeys and I create different personas for different types of guests. Um, and I go on those journeys with each different persona. I love the concept of travel or trip personas. It's something that I use so much in my work too. So I felt gratified in hearing you say that. <laughs> I personally really respond to the use of sort of vintage imagery, especially in new businesses. For example, there was this amazing cocktail bar in my neighborhood that unfortunately was a casualty of the pandemic, but it was called the Golden Eagle. And it was designed to look like an old school Elks Lounge, a modern take on an old school Elks Lounge. And everything from the menu selections to the craft cocktails to the deer head hanging over the bar, all every single piece was perfectly selected, but it didn't feel like you were in an old dingy place. Does that make sense? 
What do you think that new businesses are trying to communicate when they reach back in time like that for a look and feel? I think it's interesting that, well, honestly, the stuff from when I was a kid is now vintage. So it's kind of easy for me at this point. I was talking to a client yesterday and we're talking about taking this piece of uh, art that we created, a photograph that we did for this campaign, and then kind of distressing it a little bit and then printing it out on a silk screen and then sewing it onto a back of a distressed denim jacket. I'm like, oh, you mean like when I was a kid? (laughs) We're about the same age, Jay. I remember that too. I'm like, oh, this? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) But apparently that's vintage now. Mm -hmm. So there's a, especially post-pandemic, there's a big longing for what I will call the good old days, which just means that we all have bad memories at this stage, but the good old days, right? So a simpler time, or um, sometimes I'm building brands that I'm building a brand right now for a hotel group that is going to be a big kind of national brand soon. That is, I've drawn on the roots of the WPA. So the Works Progress Administration from FDR. And if we look at the socio-political climate right now, we're sort of in that same cycle. So I think if there's something like what you're talking about, a a new opening or a new bar, restaurant, hotel that seeks to reclaim some kind of uh, nostalgia of a bygone era, if it again can walk the walk, then it's relevant. It's when we're mixing things that don't belong that we get into trouble. Um, it's when we're trying to, you know, put a round peg in a square hole or just overly commercialize something or just do something because it's trendy and we don't really know what else to do. That's a perfect segue into my next question, which is what happens when the owner or developer of a project gets fixated on a style that doesn't work for their business. So for example, we want all of the collateral to be very sleek and modern. And this is a old adaptive reuse of an old bank that they're working in or do you know what I mean? Stuff that just doesn't make sense. How do you handle when you run into creative differences like that or directional differences? Well, I'm fortunate at this point that I don't get those kinds of direction from ownership. I work with owners that are many times very strong opinionated and strong-willed, but they hire me for a reason. They don't hire me to execute on their vision in terms of, I want a vintage style for this modern building or vice versa. They hire me because they want my expertise and my creativity applied to this project. So if somebody came to me and said, oh, I want what you just asked for, I would probably thank them for their time and wish them luck in their project and and maybe recommend uh, a, a production artist that could just, you know, hit keys on a keyboard. That's interesting. But I do... There are projects that I've worked on that mix these kinds of styles, right? So I've got a project uh, on the Hudson in New York that is this group of old stately manors in Terrytown. And they hired a very progressive modern architect. So you walk into this manor and you're now in some weird futuristic <laughs> crazy thing with, you know, deer antler chandeliers and all kinds of things that are very uh, arresting and and visually interesting, but very modern. Um, So then I was tasked with branding it. So I went 
old world, like you're talking about this Elks Lodge. I saw these deer on the property and they were just roaming free. So I went with the deer and I did the stag's head, this old traditional illustration of a stag's head, but I did it in neon yellow. Oh, that's cool. Um, so all of their traditional crests and coat of arms and all of these things are in neon. I want people to see a little glimpse of what they're going to see on property when they're, you know, whatever shopping online. I love that. I I like people to be surprised in a good way, right? We're supposed to surprise and delight, but I don't want people to be disappointed or I don't want to sell something that's not true. How do you think that high-tech, low-touch innovations born out of the pandemic for example, QR code menus or contactless check-in. How do you think those impact a brand? Can they be done well? I am sensing that you think they can definitely be done poorly. Well, I hate to say it like this, but the best thing that ever happened for the QR code as a brand was the pandemic. You know, the QR code way back, we were using them in early days of the QR code. And it was like, oh, this is cool. But then nobody had... You had to download a QR code reader onto your phone. And it was a very strong barrier to acceptance. And now you know everybody's camera that's on their phone can read it without any problems as long as your internet's good. I hate QR codes. <laughs> I hate contactless entry. I hate having a key to my hotel room door on my phone. I hate Airbnb. I want to walk into a space if I'm a guest and I want to be welcomed by a person. You know, I think that with convenience, we're losing a personal touch. So, yes, is it more convenient for me to stumble home drunk into my hotel at 3 a.m. and have to try to avoid the gaze of the judgy front desk agent at the, you know, on the night shift? Sure. Is it more convenient for me to just kind of swipe a key and have nobody there and get into the elevator and stumble to my door? And not that I do this a lot, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it loses that personal touch. Every interaction between two people in a hotel or a restaurant is an opportunity to create an experience for a guest that's going to be meaningful and will build ultimately loyalty. And when you strip those away, you miss those opportunities. Yes, sure, you don't have to pay the extra front desk staff over the night shift or something. So you're going to save yourself, I don't know, $250 a day. Okay, fine. I get it. But you're losing that opportunity. And you're missing that opportunity for me when something goes wrong in the hotel. When I cut myself or I step on something or... I hear a scary noise or my aircon stops working or whatever to go downstairs or call that person and have them make things right. As you know, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with at least one or two very practical tips that they can take back to their business and try. If a restaurant or hotel is ready for a brand refresh or brand update, what do you think are the two or three key areas that they should invest in? So this has come up a lot over the pandemic where you know thought leaders writing articles about, oh, well, reinvent yourselves during the slow period when you have time. 
absolutely true, but also not a whole lot of money to throw at it. So if you were going to just do a couple of things, what do you think those should be? Um, that's a difficult question. I think I would have to look at why, right? Like, why are you trying to reinvent yourself? Why are you not spending on hard goods? Because it sounds to me, I mean, no offense, but this question sounds to me like somebody's trying to do something kind of half-assed or, you know, on low budget, I'd rather do nothing and wait until you can do something properly or there's a reason to do it. Like if, if, the, if it's just, oh, we've been closed and we want to tell people we're still here to do an ad campaign or do something or spend money on social media or do whatever. If it's like, oh, we want people to think we're different, but we're not really different. Don't do anything. <laughs> or change your menu. I love that answer. I agree with you completely. I think a lot of times individual properties in particular, and definitely restaurants that are owned by individuals, think like, we'll do a new logo. And that'll mean that we're new and fresh. And to your point, spend more money on your ingredients, get better sheets. Spend more money on your ingredients, get better sheets, uh, clean the kitchen, <laughs> You know, put in a, a different a pizza oven or something that, that you can then utilize. I get it. Look, I love sole operator, chef owners. I love all that. But spend it on the dining room, right? I have a, I have a chef owner that I work with. He's a great guy here in New York. and I love it. And his restaurant was getting tired. It's been there for 17 years. He's Michelin starred. He's an amazing chef. It's a very sort of niche cuisine, but it's a neighborhood. It's a local staple. And I love it. And I used to go there all the time when I lived in the neighborhood. And I still go there when I go out of my way. And he came to me and he's like, look, for the neighborhood's changing. My customers, my guests are getting older and they're dying off. And nobody understands this type of cuisine anymore. And you know, we're losing share. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to mention his name, but I said, look at your dining room. You don't need to hire me to come up with something that's going to whiz bang, whatever. Look at your dining room. You have these heavy carpets and these drapes and these big old stodgy paintings. So am I going to come here with my wife on more than a special occasion or something? No. If you want this to be an everyday kind of thing, segment. You have a back room, which is your lovely dining room, which you can do your prefix menu. You can do whatever. Take the front room, take the carpet out, put floors in, change your chairs and your bar stools, make them a little bit more youthful and, and understated, elegant. And you're going to have two now sets of crowds. You're going to have your special occasion crowd, which is your regulars, which you love, which you're never going to alienate. And now you've got a new crowd. You don't need me to come up with how to write your menu in a new font or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Is like, we don't need mm -hmm. that. And so spend your money on doing that. And I was there a couple of weeks ago and it's amazing. You can't get into the front room. Are there too many hotel brands? No. If you look at the soft brands that have come out over the last decade, 15 years, there's a reason that they come out with soft brands, right? There's a reason that curio or tapestry or whatever exists. It's because people want unique experiences, but owners need operational support. So these big brands, these monoliths know how to do stuff. They know how to staff a hotel. They know how to procure linens and they know how to set up housekeeping. And they know all of these things that 
your mom and pop may not know or an asset manager, you know, because these buildings are assets. So an asset manager loves a building and has this passion for turning it into a hotel, but doesn't really know how to operate a hotel. And it's not what they do and they don't have a passion for it and they don't, they can't learn it. So you go to an operator like a Hilton or a Marriott or whatever, but you still get to have your personality. You still get to be your brand. So I think that that is one of the best things that have, has come out of these branded properties expanding into the soft brand is allowing a more customized, more bespoke message. Because then when you can have like your business big box hotel next to another hotel, or in some cases, what we're seeing right now is the business big box hotel is taking the first 15 floors and the soft brand is taking the top 15 floors. Do you think there are any types of hotels or hotel experiences that are missing? Do you think there's something that guests want that they're not getting right now? I think there's something for everybody. I think you just you need to find it. And you need to find a, a hotel or a property that resonates with you. My team in the UK, when they would come to New York, for example, they would always stay at one of two properties because it's New York, but it's kind of London. When you're as a guest and you're looking to book a property, do your homework and see if this place beyond location, beyond price, if this place is going to offer you the things that you want. If you want housekeeping, make sure they have housekeeping. You know, If you want turndown service, make sure there's turndown service. If you want chocolates or mints on the bed or whatever, slippers, make sure that those are there. And those are all... I mean, the information is all here. It's all on the website. It's time for you to pull out your crystal ball and tell me a prediction that you have for the future of hotels. Uh, <laughs> that sigh says it all. <laughs> if I could predict what's going to be with the future of hotels, I mean, I think that the soft brands are going to you know, essentially take over to some degree. It's difficult to justify staying at a big box when you can have a more personal experience somewhere else. I do see, unfortunately, things like housekeeping, daily housekeeping going away, unless you want to pay for it. I do see ridiculous things like newspapers included with your hotel resort fee to justify the resort fee, right? Those have to go away. And I do see interesting things happening in what we would have considered as second and third tier markets pre-pandemic. I think Coeur d'Alene or, you know, obviously Nashville's already outgrown its whatever tier market it used to be in. And it's, it's almost a first tier market at this point. But places that people have gone to live in during the pandemic as they were fleeing big populated urban areas, um, they still want those same experiences to some degree that they had before. And their friends are still going to visit them, but they don't necessarily want to stay at their house. So hotels and restaurants are now emerging into these markets where I was in Nashville, I don't even know how, a few weeks ago. And now... Sean George is opening a restaurant in Nashville. Andrew Carmelini just opened a Dutch in Nashville. I believe that Danielle Balut is opening in Nashville. We've got so many you know, celebrity chefs and star chefs and rock star chefs that are opening in Nashville and hotels. You know, The W, Hard Rock, Virgin, everything's now in Nashville. So nobody would have thought that Nashville was going to be 
New Yorkized. What I think is interesting about Nashville as a case study is that part of the reason it got so hot was because it was so affordable and the weather is relatively good. So what happens now that every scrap of land has been purchased and every single you know, high dollar operation has moved to town, where do we go next? I think it's Louisville... Memphis, Lexington, like that whole band of cities are really interesting to me because they still, there's still some opportunity there. Yeah. And they're feeder markets. I mean, if you look at Charlotte, is I think the next. I know. Um, and Charlotte's a big city, but it, it, nobody thinks of it as a big city. Charlotte's big, though. Charlotte's a big city for sure. And it has infrastructure, which is why I think it's probably going to be among the next. And it has that infrastructure and it has finance and it has technology. But you know, the weather's maybe not as good, but it's still not terrible. It's interesting. And I think if you look at places like Miami, which saw this ridiculous boom over the pandemic, and then you know that all the New Yorkers fled to Miami, and then they spent an August in Miami, and then they came running back. Um, I have spent an August in South Florida and I would get running back too. It's not comfortable. Right. And so I think that Miami is really a great place to be in February, but maybe less so in (laughs) August. I don't have the answer for you in terms of the crystal ball, but I do see instead of concentrations within tier one cities of New York, Miami, LA, Chicago, I know I call Chicago tier one. I think that we will see higher end services in terms of hospitality in interesting places. I couldn't agree more. What is next for you? And what's next for Once Upon a Time Hospitality? Uh, What's next for me? I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and I'm going to Jerusalem, Tiberias, and Tel Aviv. For work or for pleasure? For work. Um, I've got a couple of great projects there. And I'm excited to... One of them is well along one of them is in its early phases and the third one is uh, actually based in europe with projects in portugal dublin london stuttgart but the ownership is in outside of tel aviv so i get to meet with them so i'm excited about that um i've got some great projects i'm working on here in the states and i'm very happy to be busy and creatively fulfilled at the moment. I'm so glad to hear that. Okay, folks, before we tell Jay goodbye, we're going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Jay, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Oh, God. Um, I've got a lot of stories. I spent about a decade as a creative director for a hotel in Vegas. So I have to dig into one of those. I could write a book though. (laughs) This could be the teaser for your book. Right. No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a relatively tame one, but it was interesting. I was directing a photo shoot for a hotel casino and, you know, we're shooting this kind of luxury, fashiony, edgy thing in the casino. And so I had the idea of getting one of the female models and she was stunningly beautiful on a uh, craps table in lingerie and high heels. I had another idea, which was um, I want to shoot it from above. And so I want to see the juxtaposition between the felt of the craps table with the model's skin and 
you know, color and all of the stuff. And so I wanted chips. I wanted her lying on a mountain of chips, like a Scarface mountain <laughs> of chips. But I didn't want nickels or quarters. I wanted only $100 black chips. And because the felt was purple. So the purple felt with black chips and her skin, it was, it was like a beautiful, beautiful in my mind. So these guys came out and brought about half a million dollars worth of black chips. Oh my God. Did it make you nervous? Uh, I was responsible for it. So it terrified me. Yes. Um, and so the, there was no security. There was no nothing. Long story short, we had this young lady rolling around on this mountain of black chips on this purple felted gaming table. And at the end of the segment, at the end of this shot, we wrapped that. And these two giant security guys came back and were recounting the chips and we were short. How much were you short by? She was wearing lingerie, so she probably didn't have a lot of places to hide it, right? This is where we were going, exactly. Like what? But I mean, there were you know camera people and makeup, hairstyle. Everybody was there, um, lighting, video, photos, everything. And so we did have you know a significant crew. And I'm like, okay, what happened? <laughs> so it was the interrogation, and it was literally a strip search. Oh my goodness! Um, did you have to get strip searched? Everybody did. <gasps> and did they find the missing chips? They found the missing chips. OMG. Would you have had to personally pay that back, do you think, if it ha- if they hadn't been found? Yeah. Holy guacamole. And can you say how much it was? I'd rather not. <laughs> okay. it, was a, it was a good handful of $100 chips. Yeah. Oh my God. I am a craps player. I am um, a novice craps player, right? But that's the game I play if I go to a casino. And just the process of standing at the craps table makes me so nervous (laughs) that I have a stomachache for like the entire time. I cannot imagine how much anxiety was flowing around that photo shoot, but I bet it turned out a beautiful picture. It did turn out a great picture. Yeah. And it's a funny story. And were you able to use it? Oh yeah. It was great. Oh my gosh. I love that story. Thank you so much for telling it. And thank you so much for being here, Jay Swartz. I hope our listeners were taking notes and I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor with us. Thank you for having me. This episode is sponsored in part by She Has a Deal. She Has a Deal offers inspiration and education to achieve the goal of increasing the number of women hotel owners and developers. With pitch competitions for both early career and experienced women, programs channel the power of collaboration and mentorship by connecting experts and newbies, experienced investors, and hotel operations leaders. Learn more at shehasadeal.com. Thank you for joining us today. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash 10. Top Floor is a production of Long Live Lodging. Our elevated elevator music was composed and performed by John Albano, designed by Neha Patel and Jason Lum. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. 
Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 